Content warning. This episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains descriptions of grotesque, graphic violence, dismemberment, death, suicide, as sexually ex- fairly descriptive language. I'm returned back to the death and the dismemberment. It's pretty graphic. Descriptions of injuries and wounds uh, and fear of death and recklessness and, uh, and possibly some physical abuse. It's a bit vague, but yeah. And a little discussion of COVID up top. Oh, yes. Yes. Bit of COVID chat and earthquake chat and generally a few bunch of not, not you know disasters. Hey, hey, folks. Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So little time. Please join us as we continue with Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Chapter 30, Dunbar. was racking my brain to think of a Dunbar pun, but uh, it has eluded me. It, I am it, I am done, Bar. Ho, uh, ho, ho. No, stop, stop. Ho, no. Ho, ho. Terrible, terrible. Uh, well, <sighs> you'll, you'll have to forgive me that indulgence, folks. Um, I am a little under the weather today. It's, it's a Thursday, still adjusting to a new job. Uh, sleep schedule's still, I guess, not fully locked in. Uh, yeah, so just, just a little, little low in the tank today. I, Rue seems to live low in the tank these days. So would that be yes, a fair assessment? My, that is my permanent state right now. But we're we're getting we're trying to figure out why. But mm. yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's it's been raining a bit, so maybe it's the day to be a bit low in the tank. Yeah, it's kind of we got some sun showers, a bit of overcast, a bit of drizzly. We're returning to our favorite topic, the weather. But it's also heating up. I, I, I am launching my protest at the fact that this summer is going to be very, very hot. It's summer in Australia. It's going to be a very hot oh, summer. Oh, it's going year. to suck. It always sucks. It, but well, it, yeah. no, it's, it's, it's autumn still. Yeah, I know. And, and if autumn is getting this hot, I am concerned. <laughs> we, we had 30 degree days in winter, you know. It's, uh... That's true. We have some very odd weather. Um, but apparently, <laughs> apparently, because Victoria hasn't suffered enough with plague they're having they've had what in this this past two years or so not even they've had fire they've had fire they've had earthquake they've had well plague they've had a mouse plague <laughs> as well there have been there was a locust situation last year and now floods because of course what 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 is left uh, will an active volcano rise out of the ground. And I mean, that Canary Islands have that one covered, but that, that's well, just, that's because that's the funny thing. For those maybe maybe you folks have heard of it. Uh, there was a a moderately large earthquake in well, the Sydney, for, sorry, in the New South Wales Victoria region a well, week or two ago. And when I say moderately large, I think it was five point three on the Richter scale around there. Uh, but yeah. The the reason why it's significant news, it, like. Every time I brought this up with anybody is like, 
but I thought Australia wasn't on any fault lines. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't mean we can't get an earthquake. It just we means we are it's, on an Earth. <laughs> so it just means it's uh, unlikely, you know. Um, and technically, there are some fault lines nearby and bordering onto us. But uh, the main thing is that we're technically meant to be te- technically <laughs> we're tectonically. Te- te- tectonically, we're considered tectonically stable. That doesn't mean we can't get earthquakes. Newcastle can attest to that. They get some. Fa- they get got some fairly regular ones up there. But we also have ancient volcanoes here on the east coast side of the of Australia. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> one of our mountains that we look at here, the highest point, was actually the lowest point of a supervolcano that made up most of this region and blew up a few million years ago. A million, few, I think, longer than million, but a while ago. But yeah, so that was, and we call it Mount Warning, and that's funny in many ways um <laughs> it'll be kind of i mean you have to kind of turn your head and squint but it's supposed to look like a man with a large chin to me it just looks like a magma core but you know the mainly because ugh, it's a it was a big volcano but um mm. the you know my the, um just anecdotally my parents lived in northern oregon in 1980 two years before i was born when mount saint helens blew up uh, yeah, they have stories about the the uh, the boom that uh, happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had family who were fra- fairly distant, but they were affected by it. And I, I'm going. Um, well, what? it was one of those um, volcanoes, f- from my understanding, that didn't really have the the open top to allow it to expel the pressure. So yeah. half the mountain basically just blew up. Yeah. I think it's it's moments like that where you remember just how fragile, how fragile life is, and just just how much we are like how much, just how, um, yeah. <laughs> how uh, the the um, thing about the the earthquake in Melbourne it was look for Australia it was significant because a we don't get earthquakes so most of our buildings are not designed mm. to handle said situation yeah yeah. yeah. And it caused quite a bit of damage. Uh, mm. I mean, places further away from the epicenter, less so. But we have risks of like liquefaction and other things. Those those risks exist, and they're quite profound risks. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, o- overall, we're pretty lucky in terms of things. But Victoria's really copped it, man. Like this mm. is it's it's ridiculous. They, it's someone was joking that the one of the next plagues that's that's been released is uh, NFTs. Um, <laughs> which is amusing to me in many ways, but yeah, there's like it. There's some r- silliness going on. Just, well, their 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 plague numbers are pretty bad at the moment. Well, yeah, but I think the the challenge is also like it's a lot of pressure on a on a community, and I think that that needs to pressure. be. Hey, that was not intended. Just so much pressure. I think globally, we've had a very rough time of it. Yeah. yeah, and I think we should. We need to also recognize that. And I think if we talk about these things, if we address these things, if we don't, if it's not about pointing and finger blaming, but uh, finger blaming, <laughs> finger pointing and people blaming, but rather acknowledging it and having a little bit more understand, like understanding, but also understanding doesn't mean that you let yourself be abused, kind of situation. So it's a, it's a, it's a delicate kind of line. Um, to tread the reason i bring this up i saw a comic that was both concerning and brilliant and concerning uh actually what's it called a meme 
it, it was the way they laid it out was kind of like a comic and it worked out really well. And it had someone going, if masks don't actually protect us, then I've been promoting something that endangers people and might have cost people's lives for the last two years. And so I can't reconcile myself with that truth. I can't reconcile myself with that being true. Therefore, I 100% believe that masks don't help us and actually harm us. So it was it was that idea of, you know, when you've invested time and energy yeah. in, into a belief system and you can't let go of it because Some if that would fallacy. mean you actually... Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that the majority of people who still adhere to this kind of thing are that kind of like they're not able to reconcile their reality and the harm and I, I think but I'd I say think, some are like that so a small proportion would be but I think it's also um I don't think it's an actual cognitive dissonance not like the um 1984 double think but I think it's more that you know we I think we've talked about how one of the main problems yeah I think I brought it up that I see is just so many people are incapable of admitting that when they're wrong, yep. uh, mainly because of the culture. It's been it's for so long. It's been shown as a sign mm. of weakness and that you don't have to be accountable for your actions, which, again, a big problem from my point of view. But that's the thing. If, if you're incapable of admit, admitting fault or that, well, yeah, not even fault, that you were wrong, that you made a mistake. Mm. Like the the psychological toll that's going to take on you if you in some part of your brain is going, well, if I'm wrong about this, this means I have been endangering lives, especially if because a lot of these folks who who believe this have lost family members to COVID. Yep. So then they, they've got the guilt on top of that. It, it must it must be hell. It, you know, I, it's very yeah, much it's very much Cathcart. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I have complete like my heart. I don't know if it's sympathy as much as it is. I feel, I feel, hmm, I feel pity. Hmm. It's and and not saying that I'm a better person or I no. know better or I'm morally superior. Not that kind of pity. It's not a pity of superiority. It's a pity of my gosh. If if it is because you on some level can't reconcile with that reality because that would mean that you're responsible for someone you loved mm -hmm. passing away. Yep. That would be really, really hard. And I mean, that that depends. I mean, there's going to be... Unfortunately, I, I don't think that that's going to necessarily be a vast majority because generally those people who refuse to believe that they are accountable for anything don't tend to actually understand the concept as well in terms of love and guilt and like responsibility for the passing of a loved one might not even cross their minds because they are that far gone down the tunnel of being right and or my viewpoint on reality is more important than lives around me even if i could be wrong i'm not you know that kind of brain i guess i guess gonna, I, I don't i don't know i don't want to assume it I don't want to assume either way. I don't think it's ne necessarily out of intention. Like I don't think it's intentional harm, but I think being hitting that mindset where you where you don't care. Also, if you are potentially well, they have pre existing conditions, or they have this, or their lives aren't as valuable as my comfort. Generally, those folks are not going to be um, not the most. 
the relationships that I, I suspect their 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 approaches to human relationships may differ profoundly from what I can understand as as holding what values that I would hold, for example. Mm. Or like, see, so I, I, there's a bit of a void between, a bit of a gap between the values that maybe exist. But again, I can't project my values on them, and they might try and project their values on me, but I don't necessarily well, want to be receptive to so, it. So you know how we were talking a couple episodes ago about how conflict, like talking about war and talking about um, the ability to kill another fellow human being, like we, we talked about, at least from our point of view, that's actually not human nature. That's like a learned no. slash cultural slash, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's, it's, yeah, a learned behavior. And, I think I uh, this is like a protection mechanism for me, but but I think it plays into my values where I think that the idea of that understanding, like like the the not caring is like narcissism or individuality is again a learned behavior. So even if these folks are like that, I I think I have to believe at some level if it's like it it at mm. the lowest point of their subconscious, there's still that that guilt and empathy, and that's probably what's making things like, well, then that goes into may, they, maybe they're being punished, and I don't like that either, but but mm. I, I, it feels like th- these these things are there. I think, I hope that they recognize, I hope they have that realization, and it doesn't hurt them too much, but just enough to, to grow as a person. Mm. It shouldn't need to get to that point. Mm. But given... Their dynamics, their family values, their yeah. perception of self, their sense of entitlement, which I, I know most I'm getting, I get hives using that word now because it gets abused and overused, but there is a, it is the best word to describe someone who believes that they are, their rights are mm-hmm. more have greater importance compared to the rest of those surrounding them. That's a, mm. you know, that sense of, that insistency of my rights, no matter what, and I'm not saying that you, there shouldn't be human rights, but the the fact that rights are restricted to something that they perceive and they project their values on versus what is actually beneficial to the entirety of society, and again the other way around as well, for an entire society like a communal base, uh, based priority without taking into consideration the impact on the individual is also not good but but we've got like these extremes going on mm-hmm. which are not helpful um and i don't think and we've had this conversation that it's it's a it's a trained behavior it's a learned behavior if you're raised in an, a highly individualistic society yeah that's going to be the mindset that whether you realize it or even if you determine and apply other philosophies in your life you will be affected or influenced by it and you, without sitting down and actually thinking about and breaking apart where your values are sitting and what's possibly influencing them, you, you never really it, – it's subtle. Yeah. And and in other spaces, if you live in a society where only the society is valued, only the government is important, only the – I'm not going to use the term, but like one particular – person who is in power is is everything and anything is deified so to speak if uh, there's there's uh, again you will be influenced by that society whether you realize it or not um, yeah we we are the product of our environment we are affected by our environment we influence our environment but we are also affected by it and by thinking that we can remain distinct without it influencing us hmm. 
that's when you have like you might not like the society you are in you might not like the values that the society stands for and you might be very very different in terms of your values and your approaches and everything it could be very different to what's around you but to say that you are not influenced in some way even subtly by the environment that you are inhabiting it's extremely unlikely and unless you are consciously examining the environment that you live in and how that influences you which is why bringing it back to our book things like like characters like Dunbar and Yesarian like Yesarian plays or is relatively aloof most of the time from his environment but he is influenced by it yeah what what is normal what isn't normal what is an, an acceptable attitude what isn't how to survive that pressure to survive and what that does to your behavior and to your to what you're willing to compromise we discussed how how Yesarian has values so Yesarian has values Dunbar have, has values a whole bunch of them do have values but how they become eroded by that environment that they are in yeah the environment has definitely i mean we've talked a lot about it in the last couple of chapters but Yesarian is different now at the at the kind of where you know for the last couple of chapters we have been like furthest along in the timeline so it's almost like this has become a real book i don't know if we're going to jump back again or not or mm. if it's just going to play out um at the end of the timeline for the rest of the novel but but yeah he's a very different person he's he's more scared um he, he although you know we talked about he might not have been able to understand or even if this was, you know, weeks ago when he was the Yesarian we, we kind of knew from the beginning of the book. But mm. it, it really feels like um, he's been ground away or or the, the, the toll of doing everything he can to survive and just, you know, having people like Arfi and Kath, Cathcart and Captain Black and General Dreidel around it's him. Too much. Um, yeah. You know, the whole thing with the medal ceremony when he went back and bombed twice and how he was attacked for that mm. because it makes them look bad. And all every time he's tried to get out of duty through Dr. Nika or every time he's gone back to the hospital and just what a rigmarole that is. It's uh, just it's chaos. And it's all because you've got – there's no cohesion. There's no – the concept of the enemy is all very vague – You've got Peckham who's turning around saying that Dreadle's the enemy. You've got Dreadle who's frustrated with the situation and the men are just not good enough. You've got Cathcart and Corn and all of this infighting. And it's all about ambition and control and power. Mm. And for some vague notion of... I mean, you had Captain... Was it Captain Black who just basically was describing the behavior of... Uh, the Third Reich is good American values. Yep. Which, I mean, we know the Third Reich liberally borrowed from uh, mm -hmm. America. So, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, this book is masterful in its criticisms and it does it in a way, it is very much like, how can we turn around? I mean, I, I'm taking a message of how can we be so arrogant as to involve... I mean, they're the bombing a village for Pete's sake. There's nothing to do with anything. Oh, and, you know, some. Uh, th this is often the case when I'm editing an episode, the next episode will come back and go, because I heard us talking again. We didn't touch on this, but 
Before we go into the briefing, when Dunbar and Yasserian and even McWatt are saying, why are we doing this? Um, when we're with Peckham and Shizkov, I believe it was Peckham talks about how um, there's not even a village there. So my, um, my kind of outrage at the end about all those innocent villagers may have been for nothing because, I mean, look, we can't trust Peckham or Shizkov and there could be a village there, there might not be, but it really, I think it just emphasized the point that this this mission right now, you know, with with the potential loss of civilian lives is all for show. Uh, yes, except I think what he was saying to Shyskov was that it's not on the map, so it doesn't exist. Ah, that could be well too. Because I think they do know the villagers. They know that village. The, the locals, the, 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 this is to break the, the squadron in Pianosa, to basically dislodge Dreadle from his power, perceived power of Peckham, Peckham seeing him as controlling, and basically, so it's yet again another thing he can torture them with. I, I think it's a real village. Okay. I think it's just a case of the, that Peckham just goes, well, they, they're not on the map, so they don't exist, mm. um, which is terrible. And, uh, I mean, yeah, it could just be torturing, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, um, but yeah, to, to the greater point, it, it is all for, uh, personal ambition. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard, hard, but yeah. It, it's actually, uh, based on what we were saying before, like the idea of the individual versus the collective, you know, the collective in this instance would be like the U.S. Army or the American government. They're waging war and the soldiers are there to fill that that aim. But um, every well, all the top brass in this book don't care about that ultimate aim. They're there to improve their own lot. Well, maybe Dreadl, but even Dreadl is, it's, Dreadl is now resentful and frustrated that he doesn't get the recognition he deserves. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's all of these things are a massive ego poop show. And it's sad. It, I mean, we, we've much earlier on discussed the whole concept of the futility of war. And like, it doesn't mean that there won't be combat, can't be combat. There aren't moments where combat is necessary, but this kind of, I mean, the whole attitude that came from Corn, like if they hadn't hadn't been, if they hadn't gotten involved in this war, then they you know they shouldn't have been here, or they shouldn't have been Ital the Italians got, you know chose this for themselves kind of thing. Like, there's a choice that every single villager actually got to choose. Yes, we're going to go to war with the rest of the war. like. No, I mean, there was the old man um, that had that discussion with Nately, and he's like, "This is all silly." People are going to, like, we're going to lose wars, we'll lose, and then we'll win, and then we'll lose, and then we'll win. We, we're better off when we lose. When we when we lose, we've actually won, which makes no sense to anyone else. But it does make sense, because if you've lost, at least you no longer have to engage in combat to prove yourself. Yeah, I, I'd almost forgotten about that conversation. That was mm -hmm. a very, um, that got to the heart of, like, the matter. Yep. There's a lot going on in that sense when you... I think that might have been basically Heller as the author finding expression in a character mm. where he's older and wiser and knows better now. But is still a bit of a poopster. As oh, yeah. I mean, the whole book is a bit of a poopster. Like, this would have rubbed some people very much the wrong way. And not just because it's all out of order. No. 
all the Applebees and the Havemeyers would have not liked this book. Mm. Yeah, it's it's definitely something. Well, shall we continue on and see what this chapter has to say about Dunbar? Yes, please. Chapter thirty, Dunbar. Yesarian no longer gave a damn where his bombs fell. Although he did not go as far as Dunbar, who dropped his bombs hundreds of yards past the village and would face a court-martial if it could ever be shown he had done it deliberately. Without a word even to Yesarian, Dunbar had washed his hands of the mission. The fall in the hospital had either shown him the light or scrambled his brains. It was impossible to say which. Dunbar seldom laughed anymore and seemed to be wasting away. He snarled belligerently at superior officers, even at Major Danby, and was crude and surly and profane even in front of the chaplain, who was afraid of Dunbar now and seemed to be wasting away also. The chaplain's pilgrimage to Wintergreen had proved abortive. Another shrine was empty. Wintergreen was too busy to see the chaplain himself. A brash assistant brought the chaplain a stolen Zippo cigarette lighter as a gift, and informed him condescendingly that Wintergreen was too deeply involved with wartime activities to concern himself with matters so trivial as the number of missions men had to fly. God. The chaplain worried about Dunbar and brooded more over Yesarian now that Orr was gone. To the chaplain, who lived by himself in a spacious tent whose pointy top sealed him in gloomy solitude each night, like the cap of a tomb, it seemed incredible that Yesarian really preferred living alone and wanted no roommates. As a lead bombardier again, Yesarian had McWatt for a pilot, and that was one consolation, although he was still so utterly undefended. There was no way to fight back. He could not even see McWatt and the co-pilot from his post in the nose. All he could ever see was Arfie, with whose fustian, moon-faced ineptitude he had finally lost all patience, and there were minutes of agonizing fury and frustration in the sky when he hungered to be demoted again to a wing plane with a loaded machine gun in the compartment instead of the precision bombsite that he really had no need for. A powerful, heavy, 50 caliber machine gun he could seize vengefully in both hands and turn loose savagely against all the demons terrorizing him. At the smoky black puffs of the flak itself, at the German anti-aircraft gunners below whom he could not even see and could not possibly harm with his machine gun, even if he ever did take the time to open fire, at Havermeyer and Appleby in the lead plane for their fearless straight and level bomb run on the second mission to Bologna, where the flak from 224 cannons had knocked one out of Orr's engines for the very last time and sent him down ditching into the sea between Genoa and La Spazia just before the brief thunderstorm broke. Actually, there was not much he could do with that powerful machine gun except load it and test fire a few rounds. It was no more use to him than the bombsite. He could really cut loose with it against attacking German fighters, but there were no German fighters anymore, and he could not even swing it all the way around into the helpless faces of pilots like Hubble and Dobbs and order them back down carefully to the ground, as he had once ordered Kid Sampson back down, which is exactly what he did want to do to Dobbs and Hubble on the hideous first mission to Avignon the moment he realized the fantastic pickle he was in. The moment he found himself aloft in a wing plane with Dobbs and Hupple in a flight headed by Havermeyer and Appleby. Dobbs and Hupple? Hupple and Dobbs? Who were they? What preposterous madness to float in thin air two miles high on an inch or two of metal, sustained from danger by the meager skill and intelligence of two vapid strangers. 
a beardless kid named Hubble, and a nervous nut like Dobbs, who really did go nuts right there in the plane, running amok over the target without leaving his co-pilot seat and grabbing the controls from Hubble to plunge them all down into that chilling dive that tore Yasarian's headset loose and brought them right back inside the dense flag from which they had almost escaped. The next thing he knew, another stranger, a radio gunner named Snowden, was dying in back. It was impossible to be positive that Dobbs had killed him, for when Yasarian plugged his headset back in, Dobbs was already on the intercom pleading for someone to go up front and help the bombardier. And almost immediately Snowden broke in, whimpering, Help me, please help me, I'm cold, I'm cold. And Yasarian crawled slowly out of the nose and up on top of the bomb bay and wriggled back into the rear section of the plane, passing the first aid kit on the way that he had to return for, to treat Snowden for the wrong wound, the yawning, raw, melon-shaped hole as big as a football in the outside of his thigh, the unsevered, blood-soaked muscle fibers inside pulsating weirdly like blind things with lives of their own the oval, naked wound that was almost a foot long and made Yasarian moan in shock and sympathy the instant he spied it and nearly made him vomit. And the small, slight tail gunner was lying on the floor beside Snowden in a dead faint, his face as white as a handkerchief, so that Yasarian sprang forward with revulsion to help him first. Yes, in the long run he was much safer flying with McWatt, and he was not even safe with McWatt, who loved flying too much and went buzzing boldly inches off the ground with Yasarian in the nose on the way back from the training flight to break in the new bombardier in the whole replacement crew Colonel Cathcart had obtained after ore was lost. The practice bomb range was on the other side of Pianosa, and flying back, McWatt edged the belly of the lazing, slow-cruising plane just over the crest of mountains in the middle, and then, instead of maintaining altitude, jolted both engines open all the way, lurched up on one side, and, to Yasterian's astonishment, began following the falling land down as fast as the plane would go, wagging his wings gaily and skimming with a massive, grinding, hammering roar over each rocky rise and dip of the rolling terrain like a dizzy gull over wild brown waves. Yasarian was petrified. The new bombardier beside him sat demurely with a bewitched grin and kept whistling, Whee! And Yasarian wanted to reach out and crush his idiotic face with one hand as he flinched and flung himself away from the boulders and hillocks and lashing branches of trees that loomed up above him out in front and rushed past just underneath in a sinking, streaking blur. No one had a right to take such frightful risks with his life. Go up, go up, go up, he shouted frantically at McWatt, hating him venomously. But McWatt was singing buoyantly over the intercom and probably couldn't hear. Yasarian, blazing with rage and almost sobbing for revenge, hurled himself down into the crawlway and fought his way through against the dragging weight of gravity and inertia until he arrived at the main section and pulled himself up to the flight deck to stand trembling behind McWatt in the pilot seat. He looked desperately around for a gun, a gray-black forty-five automatic that he could cock and ram right up against the base of McWatt's skull. There was no gun. There was no hunting knife either, and no other weapon with which he could bludgeon or stab. And Yasarian grasped and jerked the collar of McWatt's coveralls in tightening fists and shouted to him to go up, go up. The land was still swimming by underneath and flashing by overhead on both sides. McWatt looked back at Yasarian and laughed joyfully as though Yasarian were sharing his fun. 
Yasarian slid both hands around McWatt's bare throat and squeezed. McWatt turned stiff. Go up, Yasarian ordered unmistakably through his teeth in a low, menacing voice, or I'll kill you. Rigid with caution, McWatt cut the motors back and climbed gradually. Yasarian's hands weakened on McWatt's neck and slid down off his shoulders to dangle inertly. He was not angry anymore. He was ashamed. When McWatt turned, he was sorry the hands were his and wished there were some place where he could bury them. They felt dead. McWatt gazed at him deeply. There was no friendliness in his stare. Boy, he said coldly, you sure must be in pretty bad shape. You ought to go home. They won't let me, Yasarian answered with averted eyes and crept away. Yasarian stepped down from the flight deck and seated himself on the floor, hanging his head with guilt and remorse. He was covered with sweat. McWatt set course directly back toward the field. Yasarian wondered whether McWatt would now go to the operations tent to see Pilchard and Wren, and request that Yasarian never be assigned to his plane again, just as Yasarian had gone surreptitiously to speak to them about Dobbs and Hupple and Orr, and unsuccessfully about Arfi. He had never seen McWatt look displeased before, had never seen him in any but the most light-hearted mood, and he wondered whether he had just lost another friend. But McWatt winked at him reassuringly as he climbed down from the plane and joshed hospitably with the credulous new pilot and bombardier during the jeep ride back to the squadron. Although he did not address a word to Yasarian until all four had returned their parachutes and separated and the two of them were walking side by side toward their own row of tents. Then McWatt's sparsely freckled tan Scotch-Irish face broke suddenly into a smile and he dug his knuckles playfully into Yasarian's ribs as though throwing a punch. You louse, he laughed. Were you really going to kill me up there? Yasarian grinned penitently and shook his head. No, I don't think so. I didn't realize you got it so bad. Boy, why don't you talk to somebody about it? I talk to everybody about it. What the hell's the matter with you? Don't you ever hear me? I guess I never really believed you. Aren't you ever afraid? Maybe I ought to be. Not even on the missions? I guess I just don't have brains enough, McWatt laughed sheepishly. There are so many ways for me to get killed, Yasarian commented. And you had to go find one more. McWatt smiled again. Say, I bet it must really scare you when I buzz your tent, huh? It scares me to death. I've told you that. I thought it was just the noise you were complaining about. McWatt made a resigned shrug. Oh, well, what the hell, he saying. I guess I'll just have to give it up. But McWatt was incorrigible. And while he never buzzed the Assyrian's tent again, he never missed an opportunity to buzz the beach and roar like a fierce and low-flying thunderbolt over the raft in the water and the secluded hollow in the sand, where Yasarian lay feeling up Nurse Duckett or playing hearts, poker, or pinochle with Nate Lee Dunbar and Hungry Joe. Mm -hmm. Yasarian met Nurse Duckett almost every afternoon that both were free and came with her to the beach on the other side of the narrow swell of shoulder-high dunes separating them from the area in which the other officers and enlisted men went swimming nude. Nate Lee, Dunbar, and Hungry Joe would come there too. McWatt would occasionally join them, and often Arfie, who always arrived pudgily in full uniform and never removed any of his clothing but his shoes and his hat. Arfie never went swimming. The other men wore swimming trunks in deference to Nurse Duckett and in deference also to Nurse Kramer, who accompanied Nurse Duckett and Yasarian to the beach every time and sat haughtily by herself ten yards away. 
No one but Arfi ever made reference to the naked men sunbathing in full view further down the beach, or jumping and diving from the enormous whitewashed raft that bobbed on empty oil drums out beyond the silt sand. Nurse Kramer sat by herself because she was angry with the Assyrian and disappointed in Nurse Duckett. Nurse Sue Ann Duckett despised Arfi, and that was another one of the numerous fetching traits about Nurse Duckett that the Assyrian enjoyed. He enjoyed Nurse Sue Ann Duckett's long white legs and supple calabagus ass. He often neglected to remember that she was quite slim and fragile from the waist up and hurt her unintentionally in moments of passion when he hugged her too roughly. He loved her manner of sleepy acquiescence when they lay on the beach at dusk. He drew solace and sedation from her nearness. He had a craving to touch her always, to remain always in physical communication. He liked to encircle her ankle loosely with his fingers as he played cards with Daintly Dunbar and Hungry Joe, to lightly and lovingly caress the downy skin of her fair, smooth thigh with the backs of his nails, or dreamily, sensuously, almost unconsciously, slide his proprietary, respectful hand up the shell-like ridge of her spine beneath the elastic strap of the top of the two-piece bathing suit she always wore to contain and cover her tiny, long-nippled breasts. He loved Nurse Duckett's serene, flattered response, the sense of attachment to him she displayed proudly. Hungry Joe had a craving to feel Nurse Duckett up too, and was restrained more than once by Yesarian's forbidding glower. Nurse Duckett flirted with Hungry Joe just to keep him in heat, and her round, light brown eyes glimmered with mischief every time Yesarian wrapped her sharply with his elbow or fist to make her stop. The men played cards on a towel, undershirt, or blanket, and Nurse Duckett mixed the extra deck of cards sitting with her back resting against the sand dune. When she was not shuffling the extra deck of cards, she sat squinting into a tiny pocket mirror, brushing mascara on her curling reddish eyelashes in a bird-brained effort to make them longer permanently. Occasionally, she was able to stack the cards or spoil the deck in a way they did not discover until they were well into the game and she laughed and glowed with blissful gratification when they all hurled their cards down disgustedly and began pinching her sharply on the arms or legs as they called her filthy names and warned her to stop fooling around. She would prattle nonsensically when they were striving hardest to think, and a pink flush of elation crept into her cheeks when they gave her more sharp raps on the arms and legs with their fists and told her to shut up. Nurse Duckett reveled in such attention and ducked her short chestnut bangs with joy when the Assyrian and the others focused upon her. It gave her a peculiar feeling of warm and expectant well-being to know that so many naked boys and men were idling close by on the other side of the sand dunes. She had only to stretch her neck or rise on some pretext to see twenty or forty undressed males lounging or playing ball in the sunlight. Her own body was such a familiar and unremarkable thing to her that she was puzzled by the convulsive ecstasy men could take from it, by the intense and amusing need they had merely to touch it, to reach out urgently and press it, squeeze it, pinch it, rub it. She did not understand the Assyrian's lust, but she was willing to take his word for it. Evenings, when the Assyrian felt horny, he brought Nurse Duckett to the beach with two blankets and enjoyed making love to her with most of their clothes on, more than he sometimes enjoyed making love to all the vigorous, bare, amoral girls in Rome. Frequently, they went to the beach at night and did not make love, but just lay shivering between the blankets against each other to ward off the brisk, damp chill. The ink-black nights were turning cold, the stars frosty and fewer. 
The raft swayed in the ghostly trail of moonlight and seemed to be sailing away. A marked hint of cold weather penetrated the air. Other men were just starting to build stoves and came to Yusarian's tent during the day to marvel at Orr's workmanship. It thrilled Nurse Duckett rapturously that Yusarian could not keep his hands off her when they were together, although she would not let him slip them inside her bathing shorts during the day when anyone was near enough to see, not even when the only witness was Nurse Kramer, who sat on the other side of her sand dune with her reproving nose in the air and pretended not to see anything. Nurse Kramer had stopped speaking to Nurse Duckett, her best friend, because of her liaison with Yesarian, but still went everywhere with Nurse Duckett since Nurse Duckett was her best friend. She did not approve of Yesarian or his friends. When they stood up and went swimming with Nurse Duckett, Nurse Kramer stood up and went swimming too, maintaining the same ten-yard distance between them and maintaining her silence, snubbing them even in the water. When they laughed and splashed, she laughed and splashed. When they dived, she dived. When they swam to the sandbar and rested, Nurse Kramer swam to the sandbar and rested. When they came out, she came out, dried her shoulders with her own towel, and seated herself aloofly in her own spot, her back rigid, and a ring of reflected sunlight burnishing her light blonde hair like a halo. Nurse Kramer was prepared to begin talking to Nurse Duckett again as she repented and apologized. Nurse Duckett preferred things the way they were. For a long time, she had wanted to give Nurse Kramer a rap to make her shut up. Nurse Duckett found Yesarian wonderful and was already trying to change him. Of course, <laughs> as you do. She loved to watch him taking short naps with his face down and his arm thrown across her, or staring bleakly at the endless, tame, quiet waves breaking like pet puppy dogs against the shore scampering lightly up the sand a foot or two and then trotting away. She was calm in his silences. She knew she did not bore him, and she buffed or painted her fingernails studiously when he dozed or brooded, and the desultory warm afternoon breeze vibrated delicately on the surface of the beach. She loved to look at his wide, long, sinewy back with its bronzed, unblemished skin. She loved to bring him to flame instantly by taking his whole ear in her mouth suddenly and running her hand down his front all the way. She loved to make him burn and suffer till dark, then satisfy him, then kiss him adoringly because she had brought him such bliss. Yesarian was never lonely with Nurse Duckett, who really did know how to keep her mouth shut and was just capricious enough. He was haunted and tormented by the vast boundless ocean. He wondered mournfully, as Nurse Duckett buffed her nails, about all the people who had died underwater. There were surely more than a million already. Where were they? What insects had eaten their flesh? He imagined the awful impotence of breathing in helplessly quartz and quartz of water. Yesarian followed the small fishing boats and military launches plying back and forth far out and found them unreal. It did not seem true that there were full-sized men aboard going somewhere every time. He looked towards Stony Elba, and his eyes automatically searched overhead for the fluffy, white, turnip-shaped cloud in which Clevenger had vanished. He peered at the vaporous Italian skyline and thought of Orr, Clevenger and Orr. Where had they gone? Yesarian had once stood on a jetty at dawn and watched a tufted round log that was drifting toward him on the tide turn unexpectedly into the bloated face of a drowned man. It was the first dead person he had ever seen. He thirsted for life and reached out ravenously to grasp and hold Nurse Duckett's flesh. 
he studied every floating object fearfully for some gruesome sign of Clevenger and ore, prepared for any morbid shock, but the shock McWatt gave him one day with the plane that came blasting suddenly into sight out of the distant stillness and hurtled mercilessly along the shoreline with a great growling, clattering roar over the bobbing raft on which blonde, pale kid Samson, his naked side scrawny even from so far away, leaped clownishly up to touch it at the exact moment some arbitrary gust of wind or a minor miscalculation of McWatt's senses dropped the speeding plane down just low enough for a propeller to slice him half away. Oh dear. Even people who were not there remembered vividly exactly what happened next. There was the briefest, softest filtering audibly through the shattering, overwhelming howl of the plane's engines. And then there were just Kid Samson's two pale, skinny legs, still joined by strings somehow at the bloody truncated hips, standing stock still on the raft for what seemed a full minute or two before they toppled over backward into the water finally with a faint, echoing splash, and turned completely upside down so that only the grotesque toes and the plaster-white soles of Kid Samson's feet remained in view. On the beach, all hell broke loose. Nurse Kramer materialized out of thin air suddenly and was weeping hysterically against Yasserian's chest while Yasserian hugged her shoulders and soothed her. His other arm bolstered Nurse Duckett, who was trembling and sobbing against him too, her long, angular face dead white. Everyone at the beach was screaming and running, and the men sounded like women. They scampered for their things in panic, stooping hurriedly and looking askance at each gentle knee-high wave, bubbling in as though some ugly red grisly organ like a liver or a lung might come washing right up against them. Those in the water were struggling to get out, forgetting in their haste to swim, wailing, walking, held back in their flight by the vicious, clinging sea as though by a biting wind. Kid Samson had rained all over. Those who spied drops of him on their limbs or torsos drew back with terror and revulsion, as though trying to shrink away from their own odious skins. Everybody ran in a sluggish stampede, shooting tortured, horrified glances back, filling the deep, shadowy, rustling woods with their frail gasps and cries. Yasserian drove both stumbling, faltering women before him frantically, shoving them and prodding them to make them hurry, and raced back with a curse to help when Hungry Joe tripped on the blanket or the camera case he was carrying and fell forward on his face in the mud of the stream. Back at the squadron, everyone already knew. Men in uniform were screaming and running there too, or standing motionless in one spot, rooted in awe like Sergeant Knight and Doc Nika as they gravely craned their heads upward and watched the guilty, banking, forlorn airplane with McWatt circle and circle slowly and climb. Who is it? Yasserian shouted anxiously at Doc Nika as he ran up, breathless and limp, his somber eyes burning with a misty, hectic anguish. Who's in the plane? McWatt, said Sergeant Knight. He's got the two new pilots with him on a training flight. Doc Danica's up there, too. I'm right here, contented Doc Danica in a strange and troubled voice, darting an anxious look at Sergeant Knight. Why doesn't he come down? Yusarian exclaimed in despair. Why does he keep going up? He's probably afraid to come down, Sergeant Knight answered, without moving his solemn gaze from McWatt's solitary climbing airplane. He knows what kind of trouble he's in. And McWatt kept climbing higher and higher nosing his droning airplane upward evenly in a slow oval spiral that carried him far out over the water as he headed south and far in over the russet foothills when he had circled the landing field again and was flying north. He was soon up over 5,000 feet. His engines were soft as whispers. 
A white parachute popped open suddenly in a surprising puff. A second parachute popped open a few minutes later and coasted down, like the first, directly in toward the clearing of the landing strip. There was no motion on the ground. The plane continued south for 30 seconds more, following the same pattern, familiar and predictable now, and McWatt lifted a wing and banked gracefully around into his turn. Two more to go, said Sergeant Knight, McWatt, and Dr. Nika. I'm right here, Sergeant Knight, Dr. Nika told him plaintively. I'm not in the plane. Why don't they jump? Sergeant Knight asked, pleading aloud to himself. Why don't they jump? It doesn't make sense, grieved Dr. Nika, biting his lip. It just doesn't make sense. But Yesarian understood suddenly why McWatt wouldn't jump and went running uncontrollably down the whole length of the squadron after McWatt's plane, waving his arms and shouting up at him imploringly to come down. McWatt, come down. But no one seemed to hear, certainly not McWatt, and a great choking moan tore from the Assyrian's throat as McWatt turned again, dipped his wings once in salute, decided, oh, well, what the hell, and flew into a mountain. Colonel Cathcart was so upset by the deaths of Kid Sampson and McWatt that he raised the missions to 65. Oh, jeez. Woo! That was a very solemn chapter. That was a disturbing chapter. Very. Like, in the meantime, the whole ignoring that Dr. Nika's right there. Yeah. I My only guess is Sergeant Knight is in such a panic that he's not focused on anything but, like, looking at McWatt. Yeah, but he's literally there. Yeah. You know, all these men are not well. And this, <laughs> this is a, a tragedy that just popped in their lap. I, none of them are taking it well. I mean, no, but he's like it's saying like it's saying he's on the flight list. Maybe Sergeant Knight is a literalist. You can't be down here. You're on the flight list. Yeah, that's so out of connection. And poor Danica, he's just sitting there. But all of them, that's oh. Yeah, and, and like it didn't start any better either. Talking about how Dunbar is kind of completely cracked. He doesn't laugh anymore. He decided his form of protest was to drop the bombs away from the village. Yeah, I'm I mean they still hang out. out. Went back and we we heard a little more about the problem Yesarian has Mc, with McWatt. Because McWatt actually reminds me a little of Orr, where everything seems like a joke to him. Yeah, but the difference is that McWatt, he, Orr knows he's in danger. And Orr knows that there's death and stuff around. And McWatt was very dismissive of it. Mm. Although I think, yeah, right at the end, he obviously understood that his games went too far and that well, he decided not just to... not that. He killed, he killed Kid Samson, who that's was... That's what I mean. Yeah, I know, but killing Kid Samson, it's not that he's gone... It's not that his, oh, his games have gone too far. It's like, literally, he's killed someone. He's yeah. killed the young, the young kid who shouldn't have been there to begin with. I think he lied... Didn't he lie about his age? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, he was the one who'd lied about his age, who was way younger than everyone else. And he dies just because McWatt has to scare the swimmers when they're having their time off. Yeah, but he was doing that, and he was doing it all the time, and whether he was... Like, he stopped uh, buzzing the tent, but he buzzed everyone else. Mm-hmm. And specifically whether he was targeting Yasarian as well as a question. Yeah. Which he might have been. Yeah. I mean, Yasarian in the moment, was close to killing him. Yeah, and spoiled his fun, so to speak, of mm. hazing the new guys. Yeah, <sighs> yep. And just just the the 
it's almost a punchline, isn't it? The, the way that chapter ended. And in response to the these horrible deaths, Cathcart raised the missions. Yeah. So this is... Uh, I'm trying to get the timing. Mm. Man, the timing of this is very confusing. So obviously this was after they'd done another round of Bologna. Mm. The second mission of Bologna, which which Orr said wasn't going to happen. Not Orr. Um, Dobbs? Yes, thank you. Dobbs said, oh, no, but that's just a rumor. Mm-hmm. And, and then and it happened, the and Orr disappeared, and by then Dunbar's l- losing it. And Cathcart will never raise the missions again. Yeah. So this is after, yeah, so this is timing-wise, and then um, this is after that situation, and because there's new people coming, which is why Dobbs thought that he'd be, that, mm-hmm. that they'd finally be replaced, but they're not. And, and even, like, even though McWatt really... Uh, you know, as, as despite who he is, like the, that that bit of sincerity when you know the Assyrian was choking him, he's like, "You really shouldn't be here." And you say afterwards, the Assyrian's like, "I've been telling everyone." And McQuat's like, "Oh, well, I didn't take you seriously." Yeah, and that's the problem. No one, they're not listening. Like it's mm. like it's like they dismiss Hungry Joe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Yusarian essentially has become. Yeah, the, the equivalent of Hungry Joe, slightly different, but still. And then you've got, I hope Dunbar wasn't at the beach. I think they all hung out there. I don't know whether he was there at that point, uh, but yeah, I just, like I, because I'm thinking Dunbar's already lost it. Mm. He and he's one of the other pilots, and he'd be it's they, mm, mm. not good. But then again, they had different squadrons, so I don't know. Um, I, I do I do like there's a little bit of, like, despite him being very gone at the moment, Yasserian's got at least a little bit of happiness hanging out with Nurse Duckett. Yeah. But he's sitting there while he's hanging out with Nurse Duckett thinking about death. Yeah. And Orr and Clevenger and all the dead. Yeah. So, I don't know. There's something... Um, and I, I, I like Nurse Kramer as a chaperone. Well, not really a chaperone, but also Nurse Kramer being, I think both the nurses being at the beach and, and just, the, Yasserian has a certain reliableness to him for the mm. women, despite the fact that there was a sexual assault, essentially, but well. Yeah. It was sexual assault. It wasn't that one kind of sexual assault, but it was a form of sexual yeah. assault. And yeah, I think there's a lot... Uh, it's just uh, it's a mess it's a mess and everyone's just freaking out and fair enough very um just talking about you know because i was in the back of my mind i'm like what things should we note about the chapter as i'm reading them and during the whole kid samson thing i'm like this is very graphic (laughs) yeah no graphic for sure i mean there's there's graphic there was some fi- like the the uh, using his fists or his like to to hit the nurses to hit nurse Duckett that they hit the nurse. I my is like a little chuck, you know, like a uh, yeah. But you- no, it's there's some dodgy. There was a dodgy wording in there. I'm just scrolling. Sorry, folks. Bear in mind. Just scroll, 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 scroll. Yusserian wrapped her sharply with his elbow or fist to make her stop. Now wrap. Where where is that? Well, rap is like a short little knock. Maybe. Like a... Meh. 
So it does, it does sound playful to me. Mm, well, look, they're still hanging, but still, it's a bit dodge. I mean, the, the, el- they, the, the elbow... Well, they began the elbow- punching her sharply on the arms and legs, so they called her filthy names and stopped her. So she likes the attention. That That's it's, less it's, uh, playful. No, but that whole thing is, it's not a healthy dynamic. We know no, that, it's hey, it's in the middle of a war, and now they've just seen someone, sorry to be crude, sliced and diced. Pureed. Uh, yeah. No, sliced and diced. We are not going to use that other word, because that's disgusting. No. <sighs> The part that's bugging me as well is like, poor, like, there's Dr. Nika, there's like, this whole thing, it's just messed up. Mm. And then that, that punchline of, of Cathcart's raise the missions. Because it's what he looks like. It's how he looks like having this scenario happen in his thing, yep. in his squadron. So he raises the missions in order to prove himself. Whereas that's actually causing the whole problem yep. to begin with. Because everyone else is leaving when the missions hit 40. Yep. Meanwhile, he's got an entire uh, squadron out of broken people. Well, he's he's breaking them. Yeah. And Wintergreen just kind of going, yeah, I'm too busy to deal with this. Whereas um, the poor chaplain. So the thing, though, is the chaplain and Dunbar are losing weight. Mm. And they're looking sickly. We haven't heard about Milo for a while. (sighs) It makes me think. Especially because I know that we know the chaplain is barely eating. And we don't know where in the timeline Milo attacked the base. No, exactly. We don't know where, where, well. I I would assume after he attacked the base, there would be no more Milo as mess officer. You say this, but remember at the end of the attack, he convinced them that he did it for the benefit of the syndicate and everyone in the syndicate benefits. That means everyone benefits. So he managed, and he pointed out that it's a business and why shouldn't Americans have the business of shooting Americans? And that the people are just being anti-capitalist and they're being a bunch of communists for not letting him make the business of killing his own people. Yep. Outsourcing the war. Ugh. Yep. Yeah. Oh, dear, dear. Yeah, that, that, that was a bit of a downer chapter. <laughs> Very much so. But I think, I mean, next episode, uh, next episode, next chapter is a chapter on Mrs. Danica. So, hmm. given that, isn't Whitcomb doing automatic letters? Uh, yeah. So when someone's reported dead, he sends an automatic letter? I, I mean, it could be that the Nika dies. It could also be like he was moderately successful before he got drafted or he was getting there. So maybe he was married. No, no, we knew he's married. That was that was, that was was known. That was mentioned in an earlier chapter. Because he, he mentioned those the mention that he had his small practice and he just wanted to kind of get home back to his, his normal profit making with his, you know, his wife and stuff. It got mentioned in passing. But I'm thinking more... Whitcomb is just going to send an automatic letter. Actually, yeah, because you were talking about Sergeant Knight. Danica's up in that plane. He didn't parachute out. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's exactly how this is going to play out. It, it, yeah. it, it's almost too perfect for it not to play out any other way. It's got to be that way. And then no matter how many times it's, I'm, it's, it's like the flip side of the dead man. Yeah. The guy who's who died before he... Uh, reported, therefore he never died. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, th- that will be a benefit to Danica because he will no longer get sent anywhere else in the war. He'll probably go home, except how is he going to get home? The army's not going to travel him because he's dead. And how is he going to survive? He can't yeah. f- get food at the mess tent. He can't. Yeah. He doesn't exist. Ah, poor guy. The heck? I think he has to go to the other doctor, you know, the other squadron's doc, mm. and just go, Hi. Could you please <laughs> fix this? But I mentioned the guy has to do a death certificate, and he can't. Oh, God. Well, the, and that's the other thing. Because there's no body, he'll be missing in action, which is probably its own category. Well, I don't even think he'll be missing in action, because according to everyone, he was, according to the flight plan, he was on that plane. No, no, but what I mean, like, there will be remains with McWatt. Or maybe no, there won't, because the plane no. blew up. Yeah, they're not. It's not, the, the in that case, it wouldn't be MIA because everyone's. He's on paper. He was right. on that no, plane. You're right. and yeah. The plane crashed. Even if it, if McWatt had chucked out another parachute, it would have been fine. But no, he wasn't <laughs> really thinking about that before committing suicide. Yeah. Uh, after he had killed a child. Yeah. A teenager. Ugh. And it's just, man. Wait, who's Who's this Aaron going to fly with now? Oh, Good no. question. No. Havermeyer? No. he No. No. It'll be Dobbs. Hmm. It'll have to be Dobbs and the other dude. Dobbs and... Uh, Hupple, maybe? Yeah. I... I'm Which, not good at remembering all their relationships. Well, I'm just thinking, if it's Dobson Hupple again, that's what triggered off this whole mess for Yossarian. Because they, the, were, there they were Snowden. Yeah, yeah they, that was the Snowden flight. And if you add Appleby into that mix, not Appleby, um, Arfi into that mix, hmm. that's just asking for trouble. Yeah. Oof. Oh, gosh. And yeah. Well, at least he's got a stove. <laughs> that that everyone come came in to look at how well it's made. Yeah, and appreciated. And I bet you it's because they're getting cold. They're just wanting to warm up a bit. Yeah, he he did mention about how like the stars were dimming now when he went out to the beach at night. Yeah, it's getting colder. And so yes, yeah. Hopefully, next chapter will be slightly less of a downer. Well, gruesome. I think it's it's a book on war. Chances of it not being a downer is highly unlikely, but a little less gruesome and graphic, hopefully. Yeah. But we will see. Well, it, it's that thing as well, you know, like uh, there's so many action movies where people get shot and they just fall over. And then there's other action movies where you get to see like the, the Far grotesque too much uh, yeah. aftermath of what a bullet does to a person. Yeah, it's not nice. And, and th- this book has not shied away from describing uh, horrific uh, injury and death. But it does it sparingly. Yeah, it's just... It's so... Oh, yeah, it's going to be ridiculous. But we do thank you for joining us for this episode of So Many Books, So Little Time. The music at the top of the podcast was Soap Runs by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams. It is from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. The music at the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And you can find me at Rue McMoo 
Uh, and you can find our podcast at SMBSLT Podcast. That's on Twitter and Facebook and at gmail.com gets you our email address where you can share books you're reading or if you've started a book club or if you discuss books with your friends or anything, really. We're quite happy to welcome you. And of course, if you have a chance, please leave a review of our podcast on any of the existing review spaces. Mm. Thank you. That would definitely help. But uh, until next time, uh, please enjoy your reading. Please stay safe and we'll see you next week. <laughs>